Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 88, Dr. Trent Doherty on the Problem of Evil. Dr. Trent Doherty is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He holds a Ph.D. in Philosophy from the University of Rochester and has been a visiting scholar or professor at Oxford, the University of St. Andrews, the University of Notre Dame, and St. John Fisher College in Rochester, New York. Dr. Doherty is a productive and versatile philosopher specializing in theory of knowledge, philosophy of religion, and philosophy of language. His publications have particularly focused on ideas about evidence and also problems that evils pose for belief in God. He's published many book chapters and journal articles on such matters and has been involved in editing two books of essays called Skeptical Theism, New Essays, and then Evidentialism and Its Discontents. I have the privilege of talking with him today at the Logos 2015 conference at the University of Notre Dame about his work on the problem of evil. Dr. Doherty, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks, Dale. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Doherty, I know that you would describe yourself as a Christian philosopher, but what sort of philosopher are you and what sort of Christian are you? Well, I would say um, an excellent philosopher and an only okay Christian. That, that would be my self-characterization. Now, if you want a, a more canonical description, I would say that uh, as a philosopher, I'm interested in issues of normativity, uh, and especially the way that normative properties come in degrees. So that, that means that I get really interested in the issue of probability. And that raises the issue of what probabilities are, how they apply, and that sort of thing. So I'm most interested in normative questions and in formal models of those when it comes to the philosophy side. On the Christian side, I'm Roman Catholic now, but I was, I was raised not with any religious background. And when I was 16, I had the, uh, the born-again experience and went to church really for the first time in my life, thinking through issues concerning the nature of Scripture, creation, evolution, and those things sort of led me down a path that uh, it will be familiar to a lot of listeners where I spent a stint in, in the Anglican Communion and then eventually came home to Rome. Now, was this in college? Was this as you were becoming a philosopher also? Yeah, actually, the two developments occurred side by side and somewhat relatedly. So when I was an undergraduate at the University of Missouri studying Greek and Latin and philosophy, I started going to Mass because I had gone to the Newman Center Library to find the Dominican Fathers edition of the Summa Theologica and hoping that I could also find some of the great scholastic classics of the early 20th century. I did find some of those things, and for some reason I also decided that I would just sort of see the experiential side of it, too. I had no intention whatsoever of converting at the time. I was going to a a, a church called Grace Bible Church, so that can tell you what my official theology was at that time. But eventually I became too much of a Catholic sympathizer and I lost my Sunday school class at Grace Bible Church. The main point of contention seems to have been that I was not willing to say that the creed was 
give upable. In other words, I assign to the creeds basically the status of revelation, not the same kind of status that scripture has, but nevertheless, I, I believed in revelation outside of what God had done in the New Testament, and that was deemed um, too Catholic. Interesting. Which Was it the Nicene Creed? or I taught a class, actually, I began to teach a class on the Apostles' Creed. I used Protestant sources, actually. One of the things I used was Alistair McGrath's book on the Apostles' Creed. He's an Anglican. So I felt like I was in ecumenical territory, but once again, this was Grace Bible Church, and so that was just outside of their, their comfort zone. Just simply by going beyond the Bible. I would make a distinction between the respect in which the creeds and even councils now are in, inspired by God and revealed by God and the way that Scripture is. I think they're both revelations from God, but in different ways, and I do hold to a priority of Scripture. The Catholic Church teaches a priority of Scripture in a way, but that was still too much of the flavor of a denial of sola scriptura for their comfort level. And even though when I left Grace Bible Church, I officially started attending an Anglican church, and then when we moved for me to go to Kansas to teach Greek and Latin in some private schools, we continued to go to Episcopal churches. And then when we moved back to my hometown, we continued to go to Episcopal churches. All this time, I continued to attend Catholic churches as well. And all in all, we attended Mass for 14 years. I attended Mass for 14 years before I converted. I finally came into the church in graduate school. We're here today to talk about the problem of evil. How would you characterize the problem? I mean, what is the problem with evil exactly? Well, there are a lot of ways to characterize it formally, but I think the essence of the problem is God's supposed to be good. <laughs> you know, he's supposed to be good and he's supposed to be super powerful and knows everything. So you'd think everything would be awesome. And we'd be running around like they do in Legoland singing, everything is awesome, and that we would just all get along. But the world's just not that way. So, so that's the sort of common sense, you know, conflict. The world doesn't even suggest itself as the product of perfection. But then you have to make that precise in some way. And because I was always a lover of science, I actually started out as a physics major. And I loved philosophy of science and confirmation theory. So the way that I put it, the language that makes sense to me, to put this common sense problem into focus is to say that the hypothesis of theism seems to predict, at least prima facie, a world that would not have the extent and magnitude of suffering that our world has. And so that's, it's a problem in, in the same way that uh, it was at one point a problem for Darwinism that there weren't uh, the right sorts of fossils you'd expect, you know, the hunt for the missing link or whatever. It's just you got a theory, and it, it leads you to expect some things, and those things, at least at first, don't seem to be there. You and I have both, I'm sure, had friends and colleagues in philosophy who are atheists, and if you talk to them, I mean, some of them are personally bitter about their religious upbringing or something like that, but in a more serious vein, they will usually cite the problem of evil. The most sort of aggressive argument would be 
just God's existence is incompatible with any amount, any kind of evil. Yeah, and that version's definitely too strong because we all know that goodness can include allowing some suffering for the sake of, of greater goods. And so the, the just as the problem of evil is very intuitive and common sense, so is at least the, the foundations of an approach to the problem of evil, that sometimes evils are part of greater goods. And, and I don't mean in an instrumental sense. I don't want to wholly rule that out. I mean, I'm a mountain biker and rock climber and kayaker, and I have intentionally put my life and well-being on the line, in many cases, for the sake of certain kinds of pleasurable experiences. You kind of know what you're doing, and I, I don't know fully how to explain that frame of mind, but it's very common to, to humans. We complain about pain and suffering, but we also seek it out. I mean, think of all the gyms around us that are filled with people lifting weights and doing all these things that are so painful, but they're doing them on purpose for, and they'll say this is a means to an end. So I do think that that does need to be taken into account, but that's not primarily what I have in mind when I talk about evils being part of greater goods. What I have in mind there is more a more general thing. There's this view in philosophy religion concerning evil called meticulous providence. And the doctrine of meticulous providence is the view that, you know, God kind of plans everything out for a reason. And I don't believe that. I think that God leaves things largely to chance, but that he's done that for a reason. One of my best analogies here is these trips that I lead out into the wilderness where we read great books and discuss them around the campfire. And I know darn good and well that a week in the wilderness with a bunch of city kids, there's going to be some conflicts with nature. (laughs) And some of them might even be serious. But that is something that I judge and they judge and their parents judge is something that they need to do to become better people, to not remain infantile, to not remain juvenile. And so I do think that there are precedents for a sensible notion of testing oneself. This is in line with what's sometimes called the soul-making theodicy or the Irenaean theodicy after the church father Irenaeus. And the philosopher John Hick, who died only recently, made this the centerpiece of uh, of his approach to evil. So you're not saying that uh, there are no evils, you're not saying that pain becomes good just by being embedded in a bigger experience. You're saying it's still intrinsically evil, but yet it, it can positively contribute to the value of the whole, say, bicycling experience. Yeah, and I definitely think that all pain is intrinsically bad and all pleasure is intrinsically good. But whether a complex state of affairs that includes a pain or a pleasure is good or bad is a feature of how that whole is arranged. So while I do believe that pleasure is intrinsically good, I think there's all kinds of complex states of affairs that involve pleasure, such that the judgment on that total state of affairs is that it's, there's more bad than good. And then, you know, conversely, even though I think all suffering and all pain is intrinsically bad, I do think that there are complexes of states of affairs that include pain such that those total states of affairs are very good. And in a way, I'm just describing my life. I think my life is very good, even though my life has included some elements of 
pretty significant suffering. Not 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 something necessarily worth writing home about, but some pretty significant negative episodes, including catastrophic damage to my body, emotional trauma, time in jail. There's parts of my life that have been very negative when looked at narrowly, but you know, they made me who I am, and I would not change those things. I honestly would not change those things if it meant preventing me from becoming the me that I've become. Is this a topic of personal interest to you, Dr. Doherty? I remember being at a conference with you a couple of years ago. I seem to remember that you said something about how this was keeping you up at night, the problem of evil. Yeah, you got to be careful what you select as a professional interest. When C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, and he had to adopt that persona of the demon, he said it really wore him out and was very hard on him. And in the way that I do philosophy, I try very hard to get inside the mind of an individual who holds the opposite position of me. So I spend a lot of time really trying to see the world from the atheistic perspective, really trying to see evils as things that tell against God and really try to dwell in them and and make their badness salient. And it gets to me. It's I mean, there are times when I have to take real breaks from it. And I don't know that I can sustain this for another decade. It's very, very personal to me. So the best case they could put forward, I think you kind of, in a way, gestured at what that would be. It wouldn't just be any old kind of evil in any amount, but it would be something about the amounts and kinds and, I guess, distribution of evils. What is the strong case? You know, you're going to be a devil's advocate. How would you go? Well, to me, I, I do have scruples about whether or not you can really judge the value of worlds as wholes. I think, and this is a change in trajectory for me, I used to think that was just fine, now I have some doubts about that, but partly through reading Marilyn Adams, I'm, I'm more convinced than ever that what really matters is that God is good to each individual. So I, I don't get weighed down so much by how much suffering there is in the world, because as C.S. Lewis says, there's nobody who suffers that. There's no individual who suffers all that evil. Unless it's actually God. And Linda Zagzebski, a philosopher of religion, epistemologist, and metaphysician, has published a recent work called Omnisubjectivity, where she theorizes that God may well be the subject of all of our experiences in a way. So the only being that could possibly experience the, the sum total of suffering would be God. But other than that, no, no person does. There's just each person's suffering. And if each person has a life such that we can say that God was good to that person then the problem of evil, I think, will go away. So that means that the most powerful argument from evil will involve cases of horrendous evils to individuals such that you can imagine how that would just go too far in that person's life, that it would just be intrinsically impermissible for anybody, including God, to allow something like that to happen to that person talking about personal horrors of the sort that you know I certainly haven't undergone but that we know have happened 
And so if I were going to make the case against God, which I really have because I tried to present the argument in its strongest form, it's going to be from horrendous suffering of individuals and principally emotional and psychological traumas. And that kind of pushes you in the direction of children's suffering or the suffering of entities that can't contextualize their suffering, such as animals, but also, obviously, adults who go through things that are massively traumatizing. I was a little bit surprised, given some of your other views that I know about, that you deny so-called meticulous providence. You know, a, a common idea I run into, uh, even discussing this with students, is that everything happens for a reason. And some people, some Christians, mean that in a very strict sense, that every single last event, there is some reason for, for bringing that about. They don't always say that God is the cause. They might say that he merely allows, but still they think once God's plans are settled, it is all arranged, however you want to describe that. And so then for every single specific thing, you know, if you bonk your shit on the coffee table, you didn't deserve that pain, but there was a reason for that. Or if your pet hamster gets sucked up in the vacuum cleaner. It kind of looks like you're talking to my pet hamster, by the way. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a veiled threat. It's a little windy here on the campus of Notre Dame today, and we have these, uh, what did you call them? They call them dead kittens. We are both holding dead kittens. This sounds terrible. I guess is this your way of getting us to transition to the problem of animal pain at <laughs> some point? So Looks like we're talking into a couple of hamsters. We have uh, fur covers on the microphones. But uh, look, so if if, um, if God only has very general reasons for allowing certain things, then I mean, he, then he would be giving up a certain amount of control over individual lives. But would that still be compatible with guaranteeing that every single life comes out on the whole, or sorry, potentially comes out on the whole? you know, really good? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And the reason is that, so first is a little bit of clarification on that, on, on all that. I saw a Facebook meme the other day that said, please allow me to be the first person to punch in the face the next person who says everything happens for a reason. <laughs> and it's just a, it's a, it's a statement that has always driven me crazy. And the reason is, is clear. If you say, that then you're attributing to God some pretty rough specific choices. And I, I do have a problem with people saying praise God and God is so great when there's a plane crash and their relative is one of the few that make it because praise and blame go hand in hand. And so the idea that God selected those individuals to survive that plane crash and just passed over the others and decided, nope, you all are just going to die and this person I'll save is not one that I can get behind. Now, there are obviously, I think, specific cases where maybe God does have some specific plans. But what I see in the New Testament is, in the New Testament, I see God doing some specific things, like with Paul. You know, he seems to really go get Paul and have sort of a specific mission for him. But other things, not so much. So I'm, I certainly don't want to deny that God does sometimes act in our world to do specific things for specific reasons. I only want to deny that as a policy, the world is unfolding according to some extremely detailed plan where every single thing is in place and exactly how God wants it. Um, that is what I deny. Now, I do think that God has a sort of universal providence of a sort of um, the buck stops here account. So nothing happens that God doesn't permit to happen. 
God could at any point step in and say, nope, not going to do that. He's like the ref of a flight of a fight in a boxing match. The, the ref pretty much lets things go as, as, as they're going to go and doesn't interfere in it unless he really has to, unless he has a specific reason to. So I do think God does act directly, miraculously, mercifully in the world at some times. But I also tend to think we don't know when that is, nor could we. I doubt that there's any specific instance that hasn't been deeply investigated, because the Catholic Church investigates miracles pretty pretty carefully. Without some sort of detailed investigation, I'm not one to ever say of some specific event that right there, God did that. God intervened there. That happened because God wanted that to happen. I assume that events that happen pretty much happen because that's the way the course of nature and human choice went, and God did not override that at that time. So you think meticulous providence is logically inconsistent with our having free will? Yeah, for sure. I'm hardcore incompatibilist. You could call it libertarian if you want. I know people use that term differently. I think that morally significant free will is incompatible with almost any kind of determinism short of mere logical determinism. So I think that there's no real problem of, uh, there's no real conflict between uh, divine foreknowledge and human action because I think that's just a logical fatalism that I don't th- there's no causation there there's no interference there it's a puzzle it's interesting and even uh, problematical but not not it's, it's very different than the idea that that God makes things happen uh, that he has a plan then he bends things to his plan uh, now I do think in the long run that's going to happen. And this gets to the other part of your, your original question, which is that there is world enough in time for God. One of the things that I emphasize strongly in my work is the necessity of the afterlife the, and, and the idea that this life is but a stage. It's very easy to get caught up in thinking of this life as somehow really important. And it is important in certain ways. But any Christian should see this life as just a tiny little initial segment of something infinite and only only one part of a, of, a, of a huge everlasting story one christian writer i remember used this analogy it's like when you go into a room and turn on the lights there's a little flicker right at the beginning and that flicker is like human history or the history of the cosmos so far and then it's lights afterwards so if the problem is if God is perfect, everything comes from a perfect God, and as you've just said, a perfect God is in a sense in control, even though he allows us to have free will. How, if that, all that is true, how could there be so much evil? A lot of Christians will give a three-word answer. Those three words are free will, duh. Yeah. Why is that not enough? Well, it's not enough for reasons that I think actually, even though a lot of people have put it roughly this way, I'll at least give John Schellenberg credit for um, making more hay out of this than others have. Freedom is good. Freedom is intrinsically good. But it's not infinitely good. And freedom can be misallocated. And I don't mean misused. I mean misallocated. If I were to give my six-year-old the freedom to carry 
a firearm around, that would be absolutely irresponsible of me. That would not be a good allocation of freedom. It would be reprehensible for me to give that degree of freedom to that kind of person. And then this, if, if I were to give my, my teenager, frankly, I would probably trust them with a, with a firearm. We, I hunted from the time I was small kid on. I can handle a firearm. But, you know, what about giving a teenager, you know, a button that would launch nuclear warheads? And that seems like this is too much power in the hands of somebody hot-headed and, you know, who knows, or giving somebody who has limited mental capacities in some ways some great power. This doesn't seem right. It certainly doesn't seem like something somebody who's prudent or wise would do. But look at the power that theists have to believe God has given humans to hurt one another. It's not limitless. And I think actually that it is worth noting it isn't limitless, but it is extensive, the power that we have to harm one another. And I understand that it seems that that can seem irresponsible. So the bare gift of freedom itself, the mere appeal to the power of free will just can't be enough to solve the problem of evil because free will has to be allocated in a reasonable and responsible fashion. Some philosophers would respond by saying, sure, if you've got this anthropomorphic conception of God, you're then going to be worried about whether he's to blame. Of course, if God is to blame, well, he can't be to blame because he's perfect. So that would be to say that there's no God. Um, but they would say, God just isn't the kind of thing that could be morally responsible. He, he's not a creature. Morality deals with the realm of creatures. What's your attitude to that type of, in a way, it's a brush off of the problem? Yeah, well, I mean, I gotta be honest, my first reaction is very viscerally negative. It is to scowl and to sneer. <laughs> so, so just a little TBH moment here. That view kind of sickens me because it makes God sub-personal. God is superhuman. He's not just some dude raised to the nth degree, but God is a personal being. And, and again, this isn't just my personal taste. This is revelation of Scripture. God has revealed himself primarily under the rubric of a loving parent. That is what how God chose to reveal himself in his primary capacity. Now, I think that... Uh, some of the stories in the Old Testament about God changing his mind, God getting tricked, God forgetting, God changing his mind, God getting upset. I think these are all anthropomorphisms that must be jettisoned in a mature theism. But we shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We shouldn't throw out the personhood with the anthropomorphism. And as long as God remains a person, and indeed a person who is said to love us, then the hypothesis that we are the product of a being who loves us, whether you could have the debate about whether it's metaphysically necessary that he love us or not, but we're told that he does love us. And if you're gonna hold that hypothesis, then any data that come along that seem inconsistent with that have to be explained. It's the only responsible thing to do. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. 
First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes Store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love Him, in part, by thinking hard about Him. Dr. Doherty, when you talk to Christian philosophers and when you look into recent work by philosophers, you see, you know, hundreds of papers and even books with the word skeptical theism in there. And that's become a very popular line of response. Can you explain how this is a response to atheistic arguments from evil and how you evaluate that response? Yeah, and it is a weird name. Uh, It's not a name that all people that it gets applied to like. Uh, Dan Howard Snyder. Uh, prefers the term agnosticism, but of course that's not great either because uh, you can be a Christian agnostic in that sense. So either way you're going to end up with a Christian blank where the blank tends to negate the Christian part. (laughs) So a skeptical theist in this sense is a theist who's skeptical about our ability to predict or foresee what God would do in creation. So the basic I, it's, it's a development, it's a philosophical development of the common sense idea, what the bleep do we know? God, when people say, why would God allow this? Why would God allow that? There's a sort of common sense reply of, well, I don't know. How would I know? He's infinite. He's all-knowing. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I've got a bachelor's degree or whatever, you know, I'm an accountant. How could I begin to address that question? So I do think there's a sort of common sense basis for it. But then I think where you take that common sense basis uh, determines the quality of your response. So if the development of that common sense response is, therefore we ought to sort of assign a margin of error to our judgments, and hold them a little loosely and be open-minded and willing to be convinced otherwise, then I think it's a really great response. I think anybody whose atheism rests on the problem of evil should be a little worried. Nobody's atheism should rest content on the problem of evil because they should recognize that within theism are going to be resources to explain the seemingly inexplicable, and so they shouldn't be super confident And on the theistic side, when theists make predictions about what God could be expected to do, they should assign a margin of error, you know, sort of a plus or minus 5% kind of thing, just like they do in polls. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be, uh, we should, we should also hold those views somewhat lightly too. So that's what skeptical theism means, A, a, a theist who is skeptical about our ability to foresee what God would do. 
and it comes in degrees and this is really important because you could be a total skeptic about our ability to foretell what God uh, would do or you could be a limited skeptic. Now the strongest form of skeptical theism that gets much play is that of Michael Bergman's and because he uses the phrase in the dark a lot for our ability to predict what God would do. Now he says that we also have scripture and maybe the Holy Spirit or maybe some Reedian a la the philosopher, Scottish common sense philosopher Thomas Reed, we have some faculty of common sense that just tells us things such as that we really are in a world, we're not brains and bats and those sorts of things. So, so he counts in epistemology as what's called an externalist. He thinks that we can just know stuff even when from our own perspective we don't really have much to point to to back that up. This comes out really clearly in his work on the philosophy of, of dis disagreement. I don't think that that's a very stable position uh, because if you really if you don't have any philosophical sense of, of what God might do then God might give a false revelation God might have a Holy Spirit that misleads you so I don't know I don't know understand I've never understood quite how he combines his sort of a priori in the darkness about our, our ability to to see what God would do or have rightful expectations and these other sources of information. You're in agreement with skeptical theism just in a general sense that we uh, should be not too sure of ourselves in discussing and judging these things. I wonder what your view is toward the, the famous application of it by a number of Christian philosophers. So a lot of times when people talk about, you know, why God allowed this or that, Christians and other people will say, well, free will laws of nature, uh, he needs to maybe make it, make it ambiguous whether he exists so that people are free to be agnostics and atheists, things like that. We, do, we, we can't imagine some reasons for some things. Maybe he let me fail so I would be develop humility. That's not hard to understand. It's, it might be plausible. But then Rowe, uh, a very brilliant atheist philosopher, William Rowe, whose work I really respect in philosophy of religion, he kind of rubbed our faces in the sort of example... His famous example is the deer that gets caught in a forest fire and it's burned and it just perishes in agony over a couple of days. And about that he says, well, look, I can't even imagine even a general kind of good that would require that or any evil that's so horrible that, that would need to be avoided and it would logically require, the avoidance of it would logically require that, poor little Bambi. And so the skeptical theists say, yeah, but there could just be goods we can't imagine in the slightest. And... Whatever that, fill in the blank, whatever that good is, that's why God allowed Bambi. For all we know, that's why God allowed Bambi. That's that's a more radical end, isn't it? So I got to be honest, that form of skeptical theism that just, that takes a specific instance like that and says, well, we don't know that there's not some completely unknown good that logically requires that. I just, I got, you know, I got to be honest. This strikes me as a total cop-out. Strikes me as punting. I don't have a perfect reply to that myself, but I, if that's all I had, I'd feel really bad about my theism. I really would. I, I would not be able to rest very content on that. So what do I say about that? Well, I wrote a book about that in part. I think that 
We do have to take into account the possibility that in the cases where the suffering of such animals or, or persons is isolated or where it appears that that's taken place, that God has spared that person or that entity that suffering in a way that's kind of analogous to how in the biblical story of the stoning of Stephen where he sees Jesus and he sees Jesus stand up and come to him. And you, you get the idea that the author there is portraying it in such a way that Stephen is no longer feeling the pain of what's happening to him. He's already transcended that plane. And you could certainly imagine that happening in any number of cases. Uh, now, this is the sort of thing where this represents a, a live possibility. I don't know how to assign a probability to that. But it's a real possibility that God would do that. It fits with God's character in a way that he would do that. And then there's the issue of, you know, what happened. You know, in my book, I argue that, just as I said before, that heaven is absolutely essential to understanding how the permission of evils can be justified. I think it's the same with respect to these animals. And so I've written a book defending animal afterlife, and even that animals will undergo changes that will allow them to understand the roles they played in the world so that they could be compensated and understand their place in the world too. And that sounds also a little fantastical. And when I started writing the book, I thought of it as something that I described as significantly plausible. But throughout the process of writing the book, I, I ended up becoming pretty convinced that this, this has to be the way it is. So when it comes to skeptical theism, if it's just purely a defense, your argument for atheism doesn't work. You think, well, we need more than that. We do need to have some idea of what's going on, and it has to be in terms of goods that we actually do understand. Is that right? Yes, and here I really want to credit Jerome Gelman, uh, Yehuda Gelman, for giving a really clear presentation of this. When I first started looking into to these issues, the, my problem with skeptical theism at root was that it's aimed at a kind of inference that nobody I ever met ever made. I never met anybody who, who made this so-called no see inference from I don't see goods that justify these evils to probably there aren't any. It was just a gut reaction to the world. It's what it was for me. It's what it was for everybody that I talked to. It wasn't an inference. It was a seemingly, often seemingly appropriate, direct response to the confrontation of evils. And because I was trained in epistemology in the notion of immediate justification, non-inferential justification, on the model of perceptual justification, to me the way to think about the problem of evil was as a form of perception in a way. The immediate perception that either something was impermissible or something that was intrinsically bad and, you know, un, something that was perceiving in something the that nothing could make up for it, perceiving in something the property of being such that no good God would ever allow that. It, and so, so you get, and you can refine this in many ways, there's a view called phenomenal conservatism that just says very simply, if it seems to you that P, then you have a reason for believing P. And if it seems to you strongly enough that P, and you don't have background beliefs that defeat P, then you can know P. If P is true, certainly you can be justified in believing P. And so I've dubbed this the common sense problem of evil. And 
it is not one to which skeptical theism in any obvious way even applies because there's no inference there. And so at best, it would be a strategy for convincing somebody that this sense was inappropriate. But what Gelman's piece does is, is he, he talks about his students, just they could just never sort of buy that, you know? They, they needed some explanation of why this would happen. And the fact is, I think we do have some good explanations of why God would allow not this or that particular evil, but why would God create a world ensemble with so many rigid objects and so many soft people and so many opportunities for them to come into conflict? Why would he create a world where people have the ability to form intentions to harm people terribly and the ability to back up those intentions. That's the thing that needs it. Why would God do that? Why would God create that kind of setup, that kind of scenario? And that's the, the sort of thing that I think soul-making theodicists can address in a way that is, that is helpful. Dr. Doherty, thanks for talking with us. Thanks again, Dale. Appreciate it. This week's thinking music has been Zombie Nation by Jose Travieso. The link for this track is on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you have questions about different Christian approaches to thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? If so, send them in. You can email them, you can catch up with me on Facebook or Twitter, or you can send me some audio. I'll soon be working on a podcast episode that'll be wholly devoted to my trying to answer listener questions. Next week, another conversation with Dr. Trent Doherty, this time on his book that he mentioned, which is called The Problem of Animal Pain, A Theodicy for All Creatures, Great and Small. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.